Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. It's the start of a new season here on the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. And as is tradition, we really like to start our seasons off with kind of the opposite of what we did last week, where it was very <laughs> casual and it was so much fun and it was just about us. Uh, today's episode is going to be the complete opposite. Uh, we're really going to be taking a retrospective look through the history of video game music and we like to do these really fun episodes that focus on recontextualizing some of our favorite music and yeah. music that um, from series that are very uh, familiar to many of us but looking at them through a different lens and I think we have a really fun topic today. Yeah, we're calling this first and last and what we're doing is we have 10 beloved series some of the most popular series in games and especially video game music and we're going to play something from the very first entry and something from the most recent entry that's the rules now we dabbled on this in our old and new episode um but i think we only did one or two examples of this and so we thought it was worthwhile to do a whole episode on this and so we do have to be committed to those rules and so we literally have to play a track from... So, for example, what you're hearing in... It's crazy we've never actually played in with this. It's episode 476, and now we're finally playing in with the overworld from Super Mario Brothers, the first game in that series, and we're going to follow this up with the most recent game, which is Odyssey. So that's what we're going to be doing today. I'm really excited. Yeah, we these episodes are really fun just to... Uh, this is sort of a simple idea, and often a lot of our episodes in this style tend to have that duality. Um, it's yeah. sort of like subject and object, old and new, and comparing It's just going to be so fun to see, like, okay, this is where it started, and this is where we currently are. And there's some examples that are borderline here for, like, humor. Like, it's going to be hilarious with some of these. Yeah. Some of these, it's going to be interesting to see, you know what, oh, maybe we haven't changed too much. And then others, it's like, wow, like, what's going on? So this is going to be an interesting time. All of the series that we're playing music from are beloved and very popular video game series. Not some of the most popular ones ever. In terms yeah. of music. So what's interesting is in some of those series, like, I think for Mario, as we're about to hear, you know, the Odyssey soundtrack, was a highlight of the decade and much like the original super mario brothers it's like when you have a mario game come out the music is fantastic and that's going to be one of the things people talk about but right. some of these series uh that's not always the case sometimes certain entries have great soundtracks and certain ones have kind of ho-hum yeah like, it's gonna for be instance, all over the, the board the, we don't have an entry here from the Metroid series but Correct. if we had to do the Metroid series I think a lot of people might say that the most recent entry, uh, Samus Returns, would have sort of underwhelming music. Yet, yeah. you know, potentially in less than a year from now, that could be a totally different story because there's a new Metroid game. Yeah, that's out. the interesting thing is like if we would have done this episode a few years ago, this would have been totally different. And we might have had better music on the the second half of, of this, kind of the last entries if you will so it, it's quite interesting um so yeah what you guys heard was the overworld and let's start off with mario before we get uh, in too much into the weeds here um so like we said the very first entry in that series there was mario brothers but i mean super mario brothers really started a whole genre 
uh, platformers, really. Uh, so that's where we start with Koji Kondo. Uh, let's keep that in mind. And now we're going to check in with the series. The most recent game in the mainline series, Super Mario Odyssey. This track was composed by Naoto Kubo. We're going to play one of the most prominent themes in that game. It's New Donk City. Here we go. You guys are listening to New Donk City from Super Mario Odyssey, and have we ever come a long way? This is one of my favorite examples. I mean, going from the first game to this, I think it's really inspiring and just, it fills me with a lot of excitement. I mean, the Mario Mainline series, musically, is probably one of the most consistent when it comes to quality and care and heart Mm -hmm. every single mainline entry has an amazing soundtrack and the character of mario has evolved and changed over the years Um, but there's something special there's a spirit that's been there from the beginning that is definitely still there what an outstanding piece yeah it's so fantastic and i think got so many of us excited when we heard it for the first time you can't discount the incredible performance but i think what's so amazing about what kubo did here is is take the assignment which is really to make a mario big band piece um and in this piece of music is both no more uh simple or complex than that it really Mm -hmm. captures that assignment and, and does it perfectly, I think. This is a Mario jazz piece, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's it's definitely delving into a lot of stylistic corners that would be um, maybe less typical for like a, you know, an overworld theme in the Mario series. Right. Yet at the same time, melodically, in terms of the rhythms, in terms of, in some ways, the simplicity of the chord progressions or the repeating patterns within them, give it that sort of video game pop sensibility that puts it in the Mario canon. There's one thing so important is I think the context of this area. I mean, Odyssey is kind of a potpourri of a bunch of different areas that have different feels musically too. And so this isn't the first area. This isn't like, you know, in Mario 1 where it's like the main area. Uh, This is something, there's a very exciting moment when you finally get to New Donk City and then you have to, you know, get all the members of the band together. And then when you finally hear this full track, 
it really is a celebration. It's just a really right. awesome moment in the game. And so it feels like the whole band is partying here. Yeah, and well, the the traveling around the world theme of the game in general, uh, it, it's definitely how the music is characterized. Yeah. And what I think is so fantastic about all the composers who worked on this game is I think they did an excellent job of writing really strong material that could be utilized in different contexts, but then making it very pastiche in terms of presentation. Right. And so I think to the average listener, all they notice is, oh, the snow area sounds like this and the desert area sounds like that. But um, the thing that makes it stand aside, I think some of the already legendary pieces of music in the Mario series are that each one of them have really indelible melodies just by themselves without the specific pastiche context. And I think this is a great example. Yeah. So I feel like if we if we check in with Mario uh, and we're just going to do a little almost like when you go to the doctor for like a, a checkup, right? Uh, Mario is still incredibly healthy and strong as ever uh, is evidenced by Odyssey's music. And so that's a series that we all just really have to cherish. I mean, the amount of care, consistent care that's been given over the years. All right, let's go on to another series now. A lot of today is starting on the NES. It'll be interesting to hear where do we start uh, for this next series? We start on the NES as well. Uh, it's Mega Man. We're going to start with the first game, which was composed by Manami Matsumai. Let's play something pretty indicative of that score, Cutman. guys listening to Cutman, classic track from Mega Man 1 for the NES by Matsumai. And if we were to do this episode even a couple years ago, we would have had a different game to follow uh, with the last <laughs> part. Um, and it might have been stronger. I, you know, no spoilers, but um, what we're going to move to is not amazing. And so I think it's interesting, you know, we didn't just pick series that are like Mario where the counterpart track is, is incredibly strong. Some of these are not uh, incredibly strong. Some of these series have kind of had a, a rough uh, passage through time. Well, I also do think, though... We'll try to be objective. We, we have to do our due diligence as composers and analysts to articulate why we think a track like Cutman is so great. Because I do think to a lot of listeners, they might hear this and say, oh, what's so great about this? It sounds shrill and, and plucky and buzzy. and Or even if they're slightly more musically informed, they might say, oh, it's just a simple repeating pattern, a simple chord progression. Uh, you know, what's so special about this piece of music? Well, I think there's a lot that's really special about Cutman. First of all, I love that really as simple as all the different elements are there is a subtle sense of counterpoint this idea that you know there's this it's such a solid idea 
so yeah, exciting. Yeah, it really has the feeling of almost a band, that there's this backup band and the melodic idea. And because the melody doesn't start on the downbeat, the melody is really... Ba -da -ba 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 -da in right. terms of how we hear it, so it's kind of and, and this idea cuts out. Well, of it's the such texture. a strong melody. Yes, it's right. simple, but it's something. I mean, talk about cuts out. I mean, the melody just cuts out, and there's so much personality. I think the strongest thing about Matsumai's score is the personality and confidence that the music has. Yeah. Like you almost forget you're listening to NES music because it's just so imaginative and charming. Well, and it is simple in that great way. Like it's a perfect. Uh, score to introduce the character of Mega Man, the style yep. of the world. Cool. It feels kid Definitely friendly. Cool it feels cool. It's hip, but it's very poppy. Simple, yeah, short sure. loops, catchy music, but but the kind of tunes that stick in your head. And also in terms of the implementation, it, it does feel like it's leaning into the like electronic side of things a yeah, bit for more sure. than some other series. Uh, but what's cool is her music definitely. Um, uh, it, to me, it's like such a great bridge. The first two Mega Man games, they're like this great A side, B side thing where the the stylistically, yeah, they... it's such a great blueprint yeah. that was laid down. It's so strong. And now, like I said, if there was a few years ago, we would have gone to Mega Man Ten, which would have been really beautiful because we it would have been NES sounding as well, and it would have been like, oh man, we really haven't changed much over the years. But we're gonna now move on to Mega Man Eleven because that was the most recent game in the mainline series. There was a long number of years uh, between ten and eleven, and eleven did not have that great of a soundtrack. Um, it wasn't bad by any means. Uh, I think the implementation and some of the instrument choices to me was a little bit of a swing and a miss and the compositions were just okay. Uh, some of them felt just mediocre to me. They definitely weren't bad. They were not anything special. I don't think they lived up to the legendary name of Mega Man in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's see, let's listen to this and see what we all think. How about that? We're going to play Dr. Wily stage with, which I think is the best track from Mega Man 11. Uh, it was composed by Marika Suzuki. Here we go. You guys are listening to Dr. Wily Stage from Mega Man 11. Very blood pumping, a very fun track by Marika Suzuki. I don't have anything against this track, um, but man, is it formulaic compared to what we heard with Cutman? It's interesting. Um, I think part of some of the cognitive dissonance that I think people could potentially be experiencing is just the context of this being Mega Man in that 
It's fine uh, music. I think if you heard this without anyone saying anything, you'd be like, man, this is so video gamey for a piece of electronic dance music. It's very melodic and has this Japanese sounding progression, very poppy. I would really enjoy hearing this live mm-hmm. or just experiencing the music. But I think in the context of Mega Man, first of all, I don't think it's a it definitely does capture some of the spirit of the classic Mega Man music, which oh, yeah. pop dance music is very much in the DNA. I guess the thing that feels off about it is, like you were saying, the production, which feels very it feels forced. It, it feels, feels like it's trying to be relevant to young people today, and it comes across as a bit tone deaf because the underlying composition actually feels like it's more in the spirit of Mega Man, but it's being arranged in this very saccharine... Yeah, the problem is that the instrument choices and the production choices are very specifically EDM, but compositionally, this isn't what EDM sounds like. It just It's just right. not what that music is about. It's This is more classic video game music when it comes to the composition, so really, I think they should have gone for more of a quirky, eclectic approach to the production. Yeah, I think that um, having electronic elements, having chip elements, having pop elements is totally cool, but what's funny is this is so dancey that I actually don't know that it totally works as game music. I mm-hmm. think this would take me out of it a little bit too much. If I was playing like a guitar hero or and rhythm honestly, game, this, this to me is thing, the best but... track. I mean... I was trying to be as nice as possible. I mean, I could have played plenty of other stage themes that I thought were just flat out lame in my opinion. So I tried to be as nice as I could. But no, this has a good melody. It's just a little, um, and I just think in a different kind of game, um, in my opinion, what's great about the (laughs) NES music is that it, it can't, um, it can never get too full or too intense. It's like they're attempting right. to make it dancey and rocky and stuff, but you know, it's always only going to be what it is. But so you know, true. when you have this kind of, you know, side chain compression hitting all the four on the floor kick drum, and it's just so loud and compressed and dancey. I just don't get how that wouldn't take you out of I'm running and gunning and shooting and platforming. Like there's something about that experience that, I don't really know that it makes sense in this kind of game. It I mean, just I think feels there's like some a pop track that they put definitely in some it. subjectivity and taste to it as well. Differences, but let's move on. Let's do this. We're going to move on to this series, the Castlevania series. Once again, we're starting on the NES, and let's see where we end up. It's been a long time since a Castlevania game, so what we're ending up on is kind of uh, an old game now coming in, in 2021 standards, but here we go. Starting off with Castlevania 1, which was composed by Kinuo Yamashita and Sato Terashima, uh, let's play something very indicative and classic from that first score, Wicked Child. <laughs> Thank you. 
guys are listening to the all-time classic, It's a Banger, Wicked Child from Castlevania. This score was composed by Yamashita and Terashima for the NES, and wow, if we zoom out and look at the whole Castlevania series, one of the strongest musically, I mean, very consistent, some some slight misses here and there, some scores that were exploring new direction, but so many beloved entries um, for so many different generations and platforms over the years when it comes to music. Um, and even what we're going to move to is a very strong score. It's very different. Um, but yeah, I think this is one of those series that, similar to Mario, I mean, a lot of care uh, and just talent was put into the music over the years. But this is where we right. start. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, Castlevania has definitely fared better, um, though it's had its low points. It's fared better than... Um, certain series that i think mm-hmm. we'll address later today yeah but uh it's also i think a really nice time to be a castlevania fan there's that netflix series on castlevania uh you know i think there's a, a, a there's been a lot of nostalgic resurgence and love for the older castlevania games i think you know and that's evident in seeing like simon belmont and richter belmont and everything in like smash brothers right. for instance and so i i think the and the new game games have been sort of celebrated and acclaimed definitely much just more been a while. than if you think of like the N64 Castlevania games and uh I think in recent years the, the series has had I don't want to say a huge resurgence but it's in a respectable place and it I think it will continue to be with us and this next score like you mentioned Carl is really cool it's a very different style but you know that that is a series that needed to evolve because Mm -hmm. you know this Wicked Child this is one of the great 8-bit themes and we've talked about it many times how it's sort of in that mold of like an 80s montage-esque piece of music and a lot of the chromatic classical deviousness is playing into the the tropes of horror cliche so this is very much like it's you know it's an arcade game feel it's like lightly it's in the way that like thriller is it's spooky but it's fun and a dancey that's like the vibe of castlevania right on the nes but as the games would go on you know they take their lore their atmosphere a bit more serious oh my gosh yes there were a lot of outstanding, uh, I guess I would say, handheld entries for the GBA, the DS, um, that were a lot more similar to the early Castlevania soundtracks. And so that would have been a lot smoother of a transition, but it just so happens the last Castlevania game that came out was actually seven years ago. It was Castlevania Lords of Shadow 2 for the PS3. And not surprisingly, the score is incredibly different. It's a lot more modern. Uh, to me, it doesn't feel as specifically Castlevania, but that's fine. I, I think it probably fits the game like a glove. <laughs> the name of the track we're playing today is Satan from Lords of Shadow 2. This was composed by Oscar Arayo or Araho, however you pronounce that. Let's take a listen to Satan.
you guys are listening to Satan. It's from Lords of Shadow 2. At time of recording, it's the most <laughs> recent Castlevania game. About seven years now. We really need another one. And I tried to go through the score and see if there was anything... Uh, sometimes I tried to do this. I didn't do it for all the, uh, the entries today, but I tried to find... What is the smoothest transition I could make? Is there any slightly campy, more melodic track? And really, there's not. I mean, this this is super indicative of the sound of Lords of Shadow 2, and there's really not a lot of tracks that are different from this style. And so, yeah, th- this is what we have. Well, and really, you can't you can't blame this composer. I mean, it's just. Castlevania is a series that it, I mean again it's like no there's nothing wrong with the score at all it's a solid yeah, score and, and, and I mean it's it's like the difference it's like going from the Adam West Batman to the Christopher Nolan Batman Absolutely. there's a reason why Hans Zimmer didn't use the I mean this is an example where you kind of can't I, I, there are some cases, like, for instance, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, I think could have utilized a lot more of the musical material from the game. Um, but when you look at video games that ser- where the series stays with us, it makes mm-hmm. sense that the style of music has to evolve, and that's always been the case. I mean, look at the music yeah, in no, the Zelda series, I think This is instance. an interesting case. I don't have any gripes with this. I mean, I think this is supposed to be a good game. It's a great score, and it's definitely a modern it seems to me like more of a horror game, at least how it feels musically. So I think Oscar right. did an outstanding job, and I just find it fascinating. Yeah, how it far sounds we've like come. it sounds like very um, solid and well composed, uh, scary film music. Yes, but I, I guess it, it, the only plea that I could make in this would. Um, be something you know bigger than the score, but the game yeah. itself is. I I wish they could find some way of. Splitting the difference, if maybe. Not, yeah, or 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 realizing that things don't have to be so serious and dark, and right. the score doesn't always have to do that. Like you could actually have a lot of fun. Castlevania is a series; it's built on tropes and cliches. Right. I think they actually make a bit of a misstep by taking their lore so seriously. Well, it's I possible do think that it works better when it's kind of for the Lords of Shadow series. There was a one and then a two. It's possible that they just really wanted to try getting as serious as possible for that. Right. I'm sure the next entry is going to be a little bit campy. But imagine if, if they did another entry and it's very stylized and then you get Jake Kaufman to do the music and right. you know he can throw in all the creepy classical whatever things you need but he also knows how to make it fun and campy and humorous yeah. and he almost I think can't having not some do that. of that joy <laughs> in the Castlevania to me it's like it's just a mistake to take series that started in the 80s and try to turn them into uber dark, cynical, right. modern action titles. Like, you got to keep it stylized and fun. Otherwise, just make it yeah, a Yeah, I have thing. a lot of hope, though. I mean, I don't know when the next like proper Castlevania entry is going to come out. But when it does, I have a feeling they are definitely going to pay reverence to you know the entirety of the musical traditions. Okay, let's move on to... Without a doubt, the most consistent series when it comes to music, Yeah, Kirby. We're going to start out... We had to do this series today. We're going to start out with the very first game in this series. It is for the Game Boy. It's Kirby's Dream Land, composed by Jun Ishikawa. Let's take a listen to something pretty indicative of that score, Ending. Thank you. 
You guys are listening to Ending from Kirby's Dreamland. It's such a classic, so happy, and I could have, uh, you know, tried to go out of my way to find a modern track that had the same tempo or the same kind of fast-paced, classic Kirby energy. Um, The track we're playing is pretty, pretty darn close, but we all know how consistent the series is. I mean, the, the most recent game was Kirby Star Allies, I'll say that now, and there are 8-bit tracks, like pure 8-bit tracks in Kirby Star Allies. I didn't pick one of those, but I totally could have done that. I mean, even sound-wise, I mean, this series has been incredibly consistent. How many, like, GameCube or Wii U or Switch titles still use, like, souped-up Super Nintendo-style samples? I mean, there's been so much reverence for the past with Kirby music um, that, I mean... It's just outstanding. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, I think Kirby fans are just in luck because if you like what you know the and how style you of Kirby music is, you there is a treasure trove, a plethora of great music by the two composers, Jun Ishikawa and yeah. Hirokazu Ando, and other people throughout the years. But, but mostly them. those <laughs> two are really the titans. They're the two daddies of the music, and they really yeah. bring and, it. And, you know, the first two games, I believe, first one was Ishikawa, second one was Ando, and then they worked together a lot. Um, those two people, I mean, the last game, Kirby Star Allies, both of them scored still. So it's like part of that is you're having the same people for the most part. Um, and the games are so specific and have a specific style and energy. Uh, let's now move on and just see how we really haven't come I super like to far. imagine that they're friends. Like, I like to of think course. that all, oh, yeah. all their kids, like, hang out together and, you know, like, mm-hmm. Ando's children, you know, call him Uncle June and they vice versa. They absolutely have to get along. Otherwise, they wouldn't work together right? yeah. uh, after all these years. So Kirby Star Allies came out for the Switch. We had an episode on it. It's a wonderful score. Um, I couldn't resist this. We played Ending from Dreamland. We're going to play an ending from this game. Sudden Happy Ending from Star Allies, composed by Hirokazu Ando. Here we go. such a great track you guys are listening to sudden happy ending it might be a fake out ending i'm not sure uh it's from kirby star allies uh this track was composed by hirakazo ando who did take the lead on this score uh there were some ishikawa compositions in it though uh yeah i mean yes this is a a slightly different tempo and um it has plenty of differences from the dreamland ending but oh my gosh i mean overall the spirit is still the same, especially if we were to break the rules and let's say play something from like Dreamland 3 as the first track, um, and then moving to something like Planet Robobot, which is also quite modern. 
I mean, that would be ridiculously close when it comes to the comparison. Yeah, I, I love the score, and I love this track. Yeah, and I, I love these two composers, and, uh, you know, I almost feel like... <sighs> I, I have so much profound love for every one of you know the classic vgm japanese composers i would literally yeah. like i'd take a bullet for any of it like they're so amazing and they're heroes long may they continue to bless our lives with their incredible beautiful music and, and that's the amazing thing about loving game music is you really look at what a short span of time um, you know, each one of the the console cycles are so quick. Yeah. If if you think about it, as a kid, it feels like forever. But it's really like the NES. It wasn't that many years. The Super Nintendo, yeah. even fewer. You know, but it's like those are eras in our minds, and they're mm-hmm. classic, and they're, it's like endless. You could spend your whole life and feel like you're still discovering new stuff. And thanks to the, you know, chip tuners and thanks to the kind of way that so many indie games and indie developers continue to revisit older pixel art styles, we kind of will always have the entirety of video games at our disposal, I think for reference and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm really glad for that, that the style of retro video game music will be, sort of supplanted forever as the, you know, I, I think we're always going to carry that reference with us. So in a way, yeah. all the music of these legends, even in series that don't do what Kirby so fantastically does, you know, like we were just talking about Castlevania, even if the games change the style musically, it's like mm-hmm. we will, we still culturally, I think we'll always have some of those reference points because the so many of these titles made such a huge impact in their time and so many of the games make reference to all of that they're kind of always going to be pointing back to the classics i think i could not agree more so we're moving to the next series and i think emotionally it's one of the one of the more mixed ones one of the more difficult ones it's sonic uh we're going to start things off for Sonic uh, with Sonic the Hedgehog, which came out for the Genesis, of course, composed by Masato Nakamura. Let's play Spring Yard Zone. Get ready to groove out to this all-time classic. guys are listening to spring yard zone one of my favorite pieces of music hands down this game came out in 1991 for the genesis and it was composed by masato nakamura who returned for sonic 2 uh, and then moved on uh, just focusing on pop music is his normal bag um yeah so this series as you guys all know depending on your tastes and what generations you like of sonic music has had a lot of up, ups and downs. Um, you know, we could have slightly broken the rules and played something from Mania, which was almost the most recent Sonic game. That would have felt a lot more positive and a, 
but like, you know, the Sonic series is, is still in really good hands. Um, but in some ways that wouldn't have been fair because that was such a unique one-off game that was borderline like a fan indie game right. um, at heart. And and yeah, really, the point of um, today's episode I will say, is not just to make us feel great <laughs> I about will say the that state of things. When it comes to the calendar, what we're moving to is officially the most recent Sonic game. It came out the same year, I want to say, but it was a few months after. So we are going to move on to Sonic Forces. Uh, apologies, but... I don't make the rules. Well, I guess I do, but we only broke the rules once today. We'll get to that. Um, Wow. I mean, the thing is, I don't want to be too harsh on the modern Sonic composers. They're amazing for the most part. And how can you ever compete with this? And that's a good point. And I mean, it's also just such a crazy thing. I think Sega was a very desperate company because they're desperate (laughs) to take down Nintendo. I mean, it's kind of like... It was this impossible dream. They seem so far behind Nintendo. And the the story of Sonic is an amazing one for a time. And and Sonic is like that friend or or that person in the pop culture who was like a child star who then grew up to have a depressing life or your friend who was, you know, really popular in high school and then sort of becomes a burnout and doesn't do anything for the rest of their life. There's a little bit of that sadness with Sonic because he was such a promising... In the 90s, it was like, wow, Sega could actually rival Nintendo. And they they clearly, what's incredible about this music in that side of things is that they clearly were so desperate for something to be a massive hit. The fact that they would go to the lengths of getting someone like Masato Nakamura from the J-pop world to write... Meant to be that he agreed to it. I mean... I'm right. sure they expected him to say no. But I'm sure they also paid him. I bet he was <laughs> getting paid a lot more than Koji Kondo, you know? I believe one of the reasons why he couldn't do the third one is they couldn't agree on terms of, of compensation, I want to say. Yeah. And I mean, does that surprise you? Look at the no. whole game industry. Most of the composers were never paid that well. I mean, even now, it's still... Honestly, that's something worth discussing. But mm-hmm. the, it's so fascinating that Sega... And there have been cases of this, you know, where they'll split a little bit more to get some name to get the name of hey guess who did the music and it's so cool that they chose to do that way back in the early 90s it's really really a beautiful story and i thank god i mean i think this is the best work nakamura-san ever did because it's in it's entirely in an instrumental idiom as you guys know i mean we're so passionate about sonic music and we've talked so much about it i think we can jump ahead now uh just think about the entirety of the series and we're jumping ahead to Sonic Forces, uh, which came out just a few years ago. The lead composer was Tomoya Otani, who I really love, actually. And this is a tough one. Uh, this track is called Network Terminal, and I was really trying to be nice here because Sonic Forces has some truly awful music in it. I would say overall, it's it's not a good score. Uh, that's being that's me being delicate with it. I, I hate this score, I will say. <laughs> However, I tried to find something really strong i knew there was strong things in here because i mean someone like otani he makes great music this is a great track compositionally um i think similar to the Mega Man 11 example i think instrumentation and production wise there were some real head scratching choices with this score um on top of that i have some issues with this being being sonic music too so very similar to what we feel with Mega Man 11 but let's just try to enjoy what we can with this track from forces it's network terminal 
guys are listening to Network Terminal from Sonic Forces, composed by Tomoya Otani. I have a lot of mixed emotions, uh, not just with this track, but with the state of Sonic, uh, where we're at. It's, uh, it's messy, and I love Sonic, and there's been so many games and scores that I've, you know, detested, I've maybe just not liked, I've thought were mediocre, some that I've loved. So it's just been kind of an interesting journey. Yeah, um, it's really tough. Sonic is like DreamWorks movies where, <laughs> you know, when you saw the first one, you're like, wow, this is really good. I guess yeah. there's going to, it's, I mean, in the case of this, it's like, I guess it's more than just, you know, Nintendo that knows how to make great iconic characters right. and platformers. And then quickly you realize there is something magic in the standards of quality, you know, whether it's Pixar versus DreamWorks or Nintendo versus Sega, they have really not handled him gracefully over the years. He's mm-hmm. made all the classic mistakes. Uh, there, there have been so many attempts to insecurely change, rebrand, redesign, go for a new audience, new style, new gimmick. And it's it's rarely worked out. It's rarely been successful since 1994. Right. And I want to stay positive. That's something we always try to do in this podcast. And I think for the most part we are today. However, I want to call out a couple things about Forces. This is, this is the best track I could find. Um, and by far, I mean, I think this is a really cool track, actually. Um, and I love yeah, the, the music, the is bass fantastic. and stuff. Uh, I, I, I want to call out a couple it's, things it's though. Strong. Is is there are some FM synth tracks in Sonic Forces? I can't speak to to why that is. If they had throwback stages or something, and they're so bad, they're so stupid. They sound like bad fan game music. Like, even if it was like a a hack fan game, I, it wouldn't even be good. The fact that it's in an official Sega released Sonic game is just so upsetting to me, who actually is really passionate about Sonic FM synth music. So that just really bugged me. And then there's this really annoying, like, trance instrument that is used as the lead of, like, 80% of the tracks that is super annoying and grating. And so... Yeah, it's that sort of, like, very out-of-tune, chorusy effect of a massive Yeah, synth. and so overall, it, it's just... There's no doubt this score was a huge miss... Um, and uh, yet another example of maybe what not to do with the, the series. Well, and it's similar to Mega Man. I feel like it's too literal in interpretation. I, it, very much. I mean, the idea is I, I get what they're doing. They're saying Sonic has always been pop music. It's always been music of the now, and that's that's true. But the problem is Sonic along with all of his appeal comes from the early nineties and you really can't remove those aspects of him and retain who he is. And that's what all of the composers almost unanimously have completely misunderstood in my opinion, that it isn't about whether the music is actually good or not. It isn't about whether the games have moments of good design or an interesting story. It's that the appeal of what was great about Sonic was the specific the way he looked on the box the way he's designed his attitude the 90s music that that feeling it's like an advertisement Sonic should have always stayed in that world and the problem is they keep trying to go for that same thing now so now they're like oh let's do an edm thing and it's almost too literal because it, right. though there was that pop culture element it was also 
a video game FM chiptune. And because of that, it could be this sort of ambiguous space. And so I think to just do pop music is is not quite right. I think it should have been like orchestra. I'll have mixed to share with... some of those FM tracks because they're just they're so lame. Like it it just makes me so upset when I heard them how bad they are. But that's are. why I, I I do think it's like there have been you know like Sonic Unleashed has moments of the score that I think capture the right moment. Sonic Colors has moments like all the Sonic games. Oh, th- yeah. There's like threads of oh where it's kind of rock meets orchestra meets pop meets all these things. That that sort of seems more in the direction of what is probably appropriate for the character. But I mean, it goes so far beyond the music that they clearly don't know what was great about the games. They've never really figured out how to translate his gameplay into 3d in a very elegant way. I just sort of think they either need to continue making Sonic Mania style, mm-hmm. you know, 90s throwback titles or just retire the character because it clearly isn't working, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, the weird thing is that the fan base is incredibly active uh, and positive for the most part, so that's mind-boggling, too. Uh, It almost doesn't really matter what they put out. There's people that still love it. Uh, Let's move on to the East series, and we're going to start off on the PC-88. That's an interesting system to start off today. East 1, Ancient East Vanished for the PC-88, composed by Yuzo Koshiro, as well as Ishikawa. This was a Kashiro composition, and I didn't want to go with the rocking battle stuff. I actually wanted to go with more of a stripped-down, kind of chilled-out side of East, and so we're going to do that for both these examples. This is Palace, which is one of my favorite tracks from East 1. Here we go. listening to palace it's a beautiful piece of vgm and it's such a great time capsule uh imagine listening to this in 1987 i mean this is really ahead of its time listening to it now it reminds us of so many other tracks that were inspired by it in this whole score and so uh it's a little textbook and and maybe a little primitive but I think it's incredibly moving, and especially for the time. I mean, it's such a strong example of, like, what was so great about East One. I mean, Kashiro and Ishikawa just 
really brought it with this first game. I completely agree. And it's also tapping into so much of what made great 70s and 80s film music. Uh, Simple, strong melodic ideas that were heroic and epic. So vibey, too. The difference between more of a classical approach and more of a rock approach. And I think that video games were the perfect medium for that palette because the synth the primitive synth tones sort of obscured the blend between there and i think in a case like this it's such a strong melody it's such a strong and simple elemental composition that yeah it's just really effective just something about that detuned psg it's just so right. moving and atmospheric and ethereal. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's almost like listening to a great like music box arrangement, which is a, a rare thing, yeah, exactly. honestly. But it's just like, it's with the simple technology, they created a little beautiful work of art. And because Something of how tragic. simple it is, that adds to the charm. And it's also amazing just to think these early you know, adventure, you know, RPG type games that they could really whisk you away to a world through the power of music, melody, harmony, rhythm, putting sounds together. Even if they were crass sounds, it's like the composition could still stir something emotionally inside of you. Well, I think overall... The E-Series is pretty pretty solid when it comes to music uh, as far as being consistent. Uh, the last game that has come out is East 9, Monstrum Nox. And I tried to go out of my way to find what is the most fitting track for a counterpart to Palace. And there really was nothing that was super close, but this is the closest I could get uh, to the vibe, right? This is New Life, um, which is composed by either Hayato Sonoda or... Takahiro Unisuga. Let's take a listen to New Life. guys listening to new life from east nine uh it's interesting we've had spin-off games uh we've had remakes but you know compared to a lot of other series really we're only at nine uh they definitely have been less entries and more years apart uh from the entries than than other series so that's kind of interesting comparing the numbers today you know mega man we had we we're up to 11 we're gonna move to a series that we're up to 15 it, more than that so yeah it's it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, East Nine is, is good. It's not particularly amazing. Yeah, I do think it's interesting, though, that a lot of, in general terms, 
stylistic qualities of the series have have remained the same in terms of you know what harmonically what type of things would happen in a slow ballad mm-hmm. and harmonically and rhythmically what would happen in an action piece of music um, and in terms of that the the scores have really remained similar and I do think the newer composers do have quite a lot of reverence for the older titles and want to make something fun that fits in line with that series so that's something that we're very lucky another interesting thing that we have to mention on today's episode is that even though I, I do think we're being accurate uh, with um all of these titles we also have to mention that there is some subjectivity and there is a little bit you know for instance we did super mario brothers and super mario odyssey because odyssey is the most recent game in you know the super mario series but really mario golf just came out and there's another mario tennis game and mario kart this and the the like if we just considered every single time his character is used in a video game, it would be it wouldn't be Mario Odyssey. And that yeah. we so could say that about some, other other series too. Yeah. So and and we haven't gotten to what I was alluding to. There's something where I broke the rules coming up. I'll explain that. But before we get to that, uh, let's move on to another Nintendo series. We have to do Zelda today. We're starting off with The Legend of Zelda, composed by Koji. And we have to play the overworld because it's the most representative of that game. It's the track you hear the most, um, and it's really the heart of the series. Let's play overworld from The Legend of Zelda. listening to Overworld from The Legend of Zelda, composed by Koji Kondo. And again, if this episode were a few years, you know, five years earlier, uh, we would have probably had a different title that we would have moved to, um, and that would have had it been a different conversation. I mean, if it was significantly earlier, it's possible we would have moved to Skyward Sword, and, and we could have played a second Koji track, or we could have played, um, you know, an orchestral piece of music. Uh, if it was a little bit earlier, we could have maybe moved on to uh, Link Between Worlds. But as it so, you know, as it stands, we're, we are going to be moving on to Breath of the Wild, and I think that's going to be one of the most uh, striking differences uh, of the day, possibly, when it comes to sound, emotion, technology, really everything. Yeah. Um. And oh God, Koji Kondo's a genius. I mean, I just. <laughs> yeah, there are some things that are so good, they they transcend, you know, one's ability to describe them with words. And I, I do think the Legend of Zelda overworld theme is one of those things. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think you could analyze it melodically. This you would could be the track of the week melodically, if we had harmonically in terms of it, its context in games and culture. 
Uh, I could talk about my subjective experience with it. We could talk about film music that maybe inspired it. We could talk about, you know, the the concept of a march and all of that stuff. But I just kind of think it doesn't matter because I, I genuinely feel almost like a spiritual connection to this piece of music. And I really think there is a level of magic and belief that Kochi Kondo puts into his music that sets him apart from some other composers. I, He's I, definitely a magician, no doubt about it. Yeah. Now, I I went out of my way to try to pick one of my favorite tracks from Breath of the Wild. I think this is going to be really interesting moving to this and mm-hmm. trying to check in and see how far we've come in this series. Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, we're going to play Hateno Village, which was composed by Yasuaki Iwata. Let's take a listen. are listening to the very beautiful and restrained Hiteno Village from Breath of the Wild composed by Iwata. Uh, I'm a big fan of a lot of the themes that Iwata wrote for this score. This is one of my favorite pieces when you play the game and this uh, starts fading in. It's one of the most calming and comforting feelings. (laughs) Truly, it's just such a wonderful piece of music and it really is striking. I mean, how far we've come in so many ways from the first Zelda video game to, to Breath of the Wild. I mean, I think musically, it is a perfect embodiment of that. Because if we looked graphically, if we looked uh, gameplay-wise, immersion, uh, it's it's kind of all even, right? I mean, it's just like a huge increase in technology over the years. And so, yeah, going from overworld to this, not not that this is like this theme no no theme can really touch overworld when it comes to a theme but as far as uh sound quality and what's capable for a video game nowadays well, also, it's pretty this amazing this piece of music is one of the greatest zelda themes i mean i i have no hesitation in in saying that this piece of music is absolutely brilliant you know it's interesting we've talked a lot about breath of the wild but i feel like what i do love about my experience with it is that to me, Breath of the Wild um, 
represents adulthood and it represents yeah for sure an awareness of the things you love and it makes me realize i can no longer be a kid and just get fully lost in these worlds because when i played breath of the wild there was a lot that i loved but there was also a lot where i'm like oh that's a missed opportunity or i wish this would have been different and i never had that as a kid playing video games and i think that's just part of because you just accepted it but it's just like as much as i love this when i experienced this in the game i had the feeling of well why isn't this the kakariko village theme and why didn't we have this happen here and why didn't they use this piece of music there and how come there's no music here and there's that and you know i was so critical of it but it doesn't mean that this isn't absolutely genius and i think that so many kids are growing up with this and i'm glad that they have this piece of music and that this is yeah you know what maybe what um ordon village did for me as a kid this will do for yeah, them for sure. and that makes me really happy the zelda series is in very good hands and i'm super excited for the sequel i cannot yeah, me wait too. to see and to hear and i mean it's nintendo when do they not you know knock it out of the park i think uh, breath of the wild was such an ambitious they definitely do sometimes <laughs> but like the breath of the wild was such an ambitious game and i know there's things that all of us criticize about it but there's also so much to love and i i i do really respect that they just they're such a unique company i feel like they always approach things looking at it in a way that nobody else would. And whether you like it or dislike it, they're just like 5 million times more unique and creative mm-hmm. than anybody else. It's true. So the next series we're going to move to, this is one of my favorite pairings of the day, is Final Fantasy. We're going to start with Final Fantasy 1, if you want to call it that, composed by Uematsu. Uh, I love the first Final Fantasy soundtrack. I think it's really inspired. Wonderful melodies. Let's play Temple of Chaos. listening to temple of chaos it's known by i think a couple of different titles from the first final fantasy by uematsu and i think this is a great example of back in this time how uematsu and koji kondo approach composing music so differently i mean i love you know the games are obviously very different but came out around the same time you know final fantasy and the legend of zelda both really beloved scores with a very different approach totally yeah what was interesting is like over the years as the the titles came out i felt like the super nintendo was an era where uematsu was able to take a breath and stretch out and really get some of the things he had in his imagination to actually happen uh, and then over the years obviously we've we've switched composers we've had a lot of different people this is a crazy prolific series we're at in the main line uh most recently 15 so we will be moving to xv <laughs> after this but wow i love the origins of this series yeah and uematsu just 
did so much right with the NES Final Fantasy scores, and I think, I, I mean, I, yeah, again, it's like, when you're looking at the classic game series, I don't think you can overstate the importance that the composers had on it. Like, I really think if it wasn't for Uematsu's music in the first six Final Fantasy games, I just don't think the series would... I genuinely don't think it would have survived all of the iterations that it has over the years. It's just like... There's no doubt about it. Because, I mean, the emotional connection that, that people have with it, I mean, the music is doing the heavy lifting. Well, and also it's like the, orig- the those earlier Final Fantasy games were the ones that were more classic fantasy in terms of both the music and the overall art direction, the story, the style of the games. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the later ones that ha- have this sort of interesting, sometimes more futuristic, sometimes more kind of a, a dark or dystopian, like Final Fantasy VII. Um, it, it, they start exploring other aesthetics, but I do think it's like Uematsu's music and the music and his eclectic style that has stuck through, I think, the entirety of the series. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. I think with video games, because they're, they, they take so much longer to complete and they do, since we're controlling them, I do feel like the memories we make, the music, the sounds, the stories, they, they stick with us in a way that has the potential to last longer than a film. Yeah, and when you look back, I mean, it's pretty amazing how much Uematsu gave to fans of this series. I mean, just so many gifts that they can open over and over again over the years. So definitely hats off to Uematsu. It's really cool because we're now moving on to Final Fantasy XV and we're moving on to a classic video game composer, Yoko Shimomura. And another cool thing is the next track we're going to move to from the next series after this is by Yoko Shimomura. So so that's interesting. She has uh, one of the last spots and then she has one of the first spots as well. So I find that interesting. Final Fantasy XV, um, we're going to play a piece called Valse di Fantastica. And again, this is composed by Shimomura. Let's take a listen. absolutely love this pairing here you're listening to valse di fantastica by shimamora from 15 and what i love about it is that this is classic 
video game music. It's just it's just classic music. It it could fit in the SNES era of this series. It could even fit in the NES era. It's it's so romantic and imaginative. Uh, very pretty music here by Shimamura. I thought this was a fun pairing. Yeah, I just love Yoko Shimamura. I mean, she is an exceptional badass as a, <laughs> as a composer. I mean, you think of the things, the different things that she has independently done in her career, different musical styles. I mean, it's like yeah. most of us knew her originally from Street Fighter 2, which is, you know, has some of the greatest all-time game music and it's in that, you know, rocking pop style. Uh, but yet she has done so many other exceptional things. I mean, one of my favorite scores of her is Super Mario RPG and everything from that series, the Mario and Luigi games. She's done so much kind of in that classic poppy Nintendo idiom, yet she's done all this great music in the Kingdom Hearts series. Think of all that wonderful music she's created and in Final Fantasy. Uh, and she really is versatile as a composer, but mm-hmm. the, the thing that carries through all of her work is exceptional taste for melody. She is such a melodic composer, and it doesn't matter the style. You know when you get Shimamura, it's going to be melodic, and I think that's the thing <laughs> that we all treasure about her work. It's so true. Okay, so the next series we're going to move to is the Street Fighter series, and this is what I was alluding to. I broke the rules here. We're starting off with a track from Street Fighter 2, and everyone hopefully understands why that is. It would have been a lot more lame of an episode if we started off with a track from the first Street Fighter game. But I think there's uh, an argument to be made uh, that this is, in a lot of ways, uh, what most people consider the first game in the series spiritually. I mean, so much more successful and popular than the first Street Fighter, and how many years did they keep repackaging Street Fighter 2 until they finally moved on? The thing Um, is, Street Fighter is kind of like the Evil Dead movies, where it's like the the first and second film, it's a sequel, but it's also kind of a remake, and most people never saw the original, they just saw the second one. So, with that being said, uh, we we don't need to explain it too much more. We're starting off with Street Fighter 2, which again, this track is composed by Yoko Shimomura, so that's really fun. We're going to play Vega's theme, uh, and I opted to go with the Street Fighter 2 Ultimate Edition version. Which we can talk a little bit about that if anyone doesn't know what that is. Um, but it's it's kind of close to the arcade sounds, but it's a mix of arcade Genesis and Super Nintendo. Let's take a listen to a really fun track, Vegas Theme from Street Fighter 2.
you guys are listening to Vegas Theme from Street Fighter 2, composed by Yoko Shimomura. And this version um, is kind of close to the arcade. I mean, it features the arcade drums and bass, uh, some of the Genesis twinkly colors, as well as the really iconic Super Nintendo samples that evoke this sense of worldliness, such as the you know the violin and the, and the trumpets. Yeah, Vegas theme, one of the most fun themes of this game, uh, and a really good example of how, how we're starting out here. Yeah, I mean, Shimamura's work is so amazing, but I think one of my favorite things about Street Fighter II as a soundtrack is that there is no definitive version. Yeah. It makes it uh, the ultimate sort of... It's almost like the game is this weird Rosetta Stone for... For for video games, where it, it's sort of like there are so many different ports and versions, and you know the Genesis, Super Nintendo, and you know the Turbo Graphics 16 CD versions, and there's yeah. <laughs> all, all different kinds of versions and ports of these games, different arcades, and there were so many versions of the you know Champion Edition and Ultimate Edition, Super Street Fighter, Turbo, all that stuff. And so it's like these themes have so many different iterations, and so there's no one classic version it's for most people what you find is whatever they grew up with they have the most nostalgic association but really objectively all of the versions of street fighter 2 are very flawed in terms of implementation but her melodies her music is so strong it transcends that you know and i should mention if anyone doesn't know um there might be some people that don't uh i actually made this ultimate edition this this is a version that i made um, mostly just to please myself because I always imagined what would it sound like if you took the best parts of the arcade Genesis and Super Nintendo and put them together and fix some of the weird issues. And so, yeah, if you're interested, you can check out Street Fighter 2 Ultimate Edition The online. thing that's fascinating about that, though, is I do think every single musician would probably have their own Street Fighter Ultimate Edition because like I said we're yeah, all it would definitely be different for different, for different people. things yet objectively each one of the versions has its own strengths and weaknesses so it is yeah. this weird it's like a real book tune where it's more about the composition underneath rather than the way it's played if you're looking Absolutely. at you know, what's good about the song now writing. I find this pairing really cool because uh, I don't know a lot of other people's feelings on Street Fighter 5 which we're moving to now that's hilarious really all these years have passed and we're only on 5 I mean that's <laughs> ridiculous um, but anyway I don't know the general consensus I think Street Fighter 5 is really cool musically and the stuff I've heard from it has really impressed me so let's all keep that <laughs> Vegas theme in our heads and we're going to move to Kanzuki Beach Malaysia stage from the fifth game and it's composed by Kaiki Kobayashi. Here we go.
I'm dancing. This is Kanzuki Beach from Street Fighter V, composed by Kobayashi. And I love this pairing. I mean, I think a lot of the music I've heard from V is super fun and energetic and very lively. I mean, we've said how many different games and different musical directions there have been over the years in the series. Uh, so many different styles, and some of them make me scratch my head, and they don't make necessarily me think of Street Fighter. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think there, there's definitely a spirit that, that Vega has that this track has too. I mean, it's very lively and exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think Street Fighter 2 is another example of like so much of what makes it classic is the time in which it came out. And it really is about those specific fighters for so many people. In terms of, you know, Street Fighter... With its association to popular culture, Street Fighter 2 is Street Fighter to most people. And, you know, yeah. Sagat and Ken and Ryu and Balrog and Vega are always going to be more classic to us than Kami and Thunderhawk and all the... All the people that I don't and know in five. And then, all, <laughs> and then a, a lot, lot of, of the ones. people... Um, from I don't even remember the names of the people and I've played a lot of Street Fighter 3 and 4 and stuff there's mm-hmm. a reason why that just whatever it is and a big part of it was Shimamura's music and I'm not criticizing any of the Street Alpha, Street Fighter Alpha games or I'm not even talking about the games but Street Fighter 2 was a phenomenon because of the arcades and a lot of the home console ports and that music is just iconic because yeah. she wrote so many memorable exciting catchy melodies that it and it also just played into the 80s film tropes that a lot of the characters were based on. I'm a fan of five, but nothing comes close to the level <laughs> of the Shimamura stuff. It's not stuff that we're all going to be talking about in 30 more years. You know, sometimes you capture lightning in a bottle for a specific reason. And as great as this music is, and as great as Street Fighter Five may or may not be, it, there is something about like Zelda has proven it can continually reinvent itself and be relevant. Mario has clearly done that. Yeah. Final Fantasy has pretty much done that. A lot of series, like we were saying, Castlevania even potentially. Um, but then there are other series like Sonic that just have seemed to really struggle with finding ways to reinvent themselves. It's quite interesting. The last series on our day today is the Metal Gear series. Now, we could have picked so many other ones. I thought this was kind of interesting. Another one where we start off on the NES and we end up with something so different. If this was a couple years ago, it would have been a different game that we ended up on. Um, but any in any case... Last pairing of the day. Uh, let's start with Metal Gear for the NES. This was composed by Kazuki Moraoka. Let's take a listen to Jungle Infiltration.
so classic. This is Jungle Infiltration from Metal Gear. Um, I just love that this is where the series starts. For the most part, it's a series known for espionage. And I think that back in the NES, this is what espionage sounded like. And uh, I think the most, arguably, maybe the most beloved era of the series was with the PlayStation uh, 1, 2, and 3 in some ways. Those are the games that I definitely hear people talking about the most, and musically too. Um, So it is unfortunate that we can't move to something a little bit more beloved, because I don't know the reception of... (laughs) It's it's our play out today, by the way. I don't know the reception of it, uh, but it was kind of head-scratching to me. The Metal series is is interesting, because I think this this track, for people that grew up back in the 80s or ever played this game on the NES, this is the most classic track of the game because it's from that opening stage. But really, this isn't the very first Metal Gear game because it's a port of Metal Gear on the MSX, which didn't have the opening Mm -hmm. jungle stage. So that's what's interesting is though that was only in Japan where people could play that. For any Americans, this was their introduction to the Metal Gear series. So video games have this interesting concept of, of ports where it's it's not like a film where you could just, you know, add subtitles. But, you know, similar things happen when you look at like certain Jackie Chan films. Well, what I find fascinating is that we did have to start with Metal Gear and not Metal Gear Solid. I mean, that would be a lot smoother if we could start with Metal Gear Solid, because in a lot of ways, that was I think a lot of people's first game in the series and it definitely set up the sound and the vibe of what the series is going to be for a while. But, you know, I think it changed a lot too. And I have to plead ignorance because uh, that's the game that I've played the most out of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I can't speak to all of the different directions that the series moved to. What we're playing out with today is something from Metal Gear Survive, uh, which Nothing on the soundtrack sounds remotely like Metal Gear to me, and so I don't know if it was a complete change of pace going left field, but we have to follow the rules for the most part. So we're going to play a track uh, called Do or Die, and it's composed by Haruna Kubo, and that's where we're ending our episode. So, wow, we've definitely come a long ways. It's so fascinating to think about the series that have stayed very similar or at least have a similar level of quality and the series that have kind of floundered and struggled to find their footing. It's its pretty fascinating. It is fascinating, but I also think it's an inspiring time to be a gamer. It's an inspiring time to be someone who loves video game music because, uh, you know, and I, I mean, I, I find this, it's just like we were saying about part of growing up is taking more of an active role or a discerning role into the culture we consume. And it's, you know, well-documented, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, that sometimes we have nostalgia for things that aren't of a high quality. Oftentimes, we're predisposed to remember, you know, the positive memories from our childhoods. Um, But I think one of the... You can look at it... We tried to be objective today. You can look at it in a cynical lens of like, oh, things aren't as good today as when I was younger. But you can also look at it in the sense of 
now we have better taste to be able to discern for ourselves, you know, what kind of content do we like? What's our favorite music? What are our favorite films? And we don't just have to consume everything that's popular that we're told we're supposed to like the way we do when we're kids often. And then another thing that I'm actually glad that we waited so long to do this is I think even a few years ago, I would have been more tempted to frame this episode. I don't want to say in the negative lens of, of modern stuff, but I think I probably wouldn't have chosen... Um, some of the some of the picks I did. I mean, I I really tried to be objective and tried to have certain series where let's find a really good track from this last game. And then there's other ones when I just had to pick what was indicative of the game. And like I said, you know, it's not all great. I mean, not every series is going to be like Kirby. I mean, that's kind of rare and special. <laughs> and so I definitely wanted to uh, give some shout outs to other series that I thought of. I mean, there's so many. I could have done something from Gradius. That would have been really cool. Contra would have been interesting. Um, Metroid would have been fascinating. Yeah, there's so many we could have done, and maybe we can explore this in the future more. Definitely. I think that would be fun. It was a good time. Will, did you enjoy yourself today? Yeah, did you? I did. It was fun. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. Um, I wanted to give another shout-out here. At time of release, there's only, I think, about nine days left on the Spellblaster Kickstarter. So definitely, if you're interested, that's a game that I'm scoring that is going to be a really cool game. Uh, it's a very small team, and uh, the, the main developer is just a wonderful person. He really deserves to have his game get funded. So if you're interested, uh, you should definitely check it out and consider backing that game. Absolutely. We're also approaching... Um shortly the time of my wedding which means that um coming up here shortly yes. we're gonna take a couple weeks off from the podcast and do some fun uh Marcata radio episodes one of which um we may even involve our wonderful discord listeners for choosing that episode yeah so i think we have one more normal episode and then after that uh there's going to be two weeks of Marcado. i think one is going to be more standard and the second one is going to be a little bit more communal and so look forward to those episodes uh, we'll try to make them fun playlists and then we'll be back with a little debriefing on on will's new status as a married person how crazy is that i'm excited I can't wait to find out who I'm going to marry. That's the part I'm most excited <laughs> for. That happens on the day, right? Because I haven't gotten that information yet. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Enjoy this track from Metal Gear Survive. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Peace out.